Oh, hello. Come in, dearie. It's I'm Mother Goose, and this here is Lyra, and she's about to tell you a wonderful fairy tale. Now, you just sit right there and, and enjoy the story. Thanks, Mother Goose. Uh, the today's story is The Sleeping Beauty uh, by Charles Perrault, uh, adapted by Louis Untermeyer. And this one, uh, just kind of preface this, it's there's a little bit more to this particular story after after the, the what we normally hear. So uh, be prepared for a few more minutes of, of story. <laughs> Once upon a time, there lived a king and queen who were unhappy because they had no children. They tried the waters everywhere, made vows and pilgrimages, and did everything that could be done, but without success. At last, however, the queen gave birth to a daughter. There was a grand christening, and all the fairies that could be found in the kingdom there were seven, were invited to be godmothers to the little princess. This was done so that each fairy, according to fairy custom, would bestow gifts upon the princess which would make her not only lovely, but the very spirit of perfection. When the christening was over, the company returned to the king's palace, where a great feast was held for the fairies. Covers were laid for them in magnificent style, and in front of each was placed a solid gold casket containing a spoon fork and knife of fine gold, set with diamonds and rubies. But as they were sitting down, an ancient fairy came into the hall. No one had remembered to invite her, because she had stayed in her tower more than fifty years, and people thought she was dead. The king ordered a place prepared for her, but it was impossible to give her a golden casket like the others, because only seven had been made for the seven fairies. The old fairy believed that she was slighted on purpose and muttered threats between her teeth. She was overheard by one of the young fairies who was seated nearby. Guessing that some mischievous gift might be bestowed upon the little princess, the young fairy hid behind the tapestry as soon as the company left the table. Her intention was to be the last to speak and so to undo any harm which the old fairy might do. Soon the fairies began to bestow their gifts upon the princess. The youngest promised that she should be the most beautiful person in the world, the next that she should have the nature of an angel, the third that she should do everything with wonderful grace, the fourth that she should dance to perfection, the fifth that she should sing like a nightingale, and the sixth that she should play fine music. It was now the turn of the old fairy. Shaking her head more than with spite than infirmity, she declared that the princess would prick her hand with a spindle and die of the wound. A shudder ran through the company at this terrible threat, all eyes filled with tears. At this moment the young fairy stepped from behind the tapestry and said in a loud voice, "'Take comfort, your majesties. Your daughter shall not die. My power, it is true, is not great enough to undo all that my aged kinswoman has decreed.' The princess will indeed prick her hand with a spindle, but instead of dying, she shall merely fall into a deep sleep that will last a hundred years. At the end of that time, a king's son shall come to waken her. The king, in an attempt to avoid the tragedy threatened by the old fairy, at once published an order forbidding all persons under pain of death to use a spindle. About fifteen or sixteen years later, the king and queen happened one day to be away. The princess was running about the castle, and going upstairs from room to room, she came to a garret at the top of a tower, where an old woman sat alone with her spinning. 
This good woman had never heard about the king's proclamation forbidding the use of spindles. "'What are you doing?' asked the princess. "'I am spinning, my pretty child,' replied the old woman, not knowing who she was. "'Oh, what fun!' cried the princess. "'How do you do it? Give it to me. Let me try and see if I can do it.' Partly because she was too hasty, partly because she was a little heedless, or, her, or perhaps because the fairy had ordained it, no sooner had she seized the spindle than she pricked her hand and fell down in a faint. Much alarmed, the good dame cried out for help. People came running from every quarter. They threw water on her face, rubbed her with their hands, and sprinkled cologne on her forehead, but nothing would restore her. Then the king, who rushed upstairs as soon as he heard the noise, remembered the fairy prophecy. Knowing that what had happened could not be avoided, he gave orders that the princess should be carried to the finest apartment in the palace and placed upon a bed embroidered in gold. One would have thought her an angel. She was so lovely. The trance had not taken away the brightness of her complexion. Her cheeks were delicately flushed. Her lips were like coral. It is true that her eyes were shut, but her gentle breathing could still be heard, and it was plain that she was not dead. The king commanded that she should be left to sleep in peace until the time came for her to awake. The good fairy who had saved her life by letting her sleep a hundred years was told of this accident by a little dwarf who had a pair of seven-league boots. The fairy set off at once and arrived within an hour. Being gifted with foresight, she thought that when the princess was awakened, she might be distressed to find herself all alone in the old castle. This, then, is what she did. She touched with her wand everybody, except the king and queen, who was in the castle. Governesses, maids of honor, scullions, guards, porters, pages, footmen. She also touched all the horses in the stables with their grooms, the big dogs in the courtyard, and little Fluff, the pet dog of the princess who was lying on the bed beside his mistress. The moment she touched them, they all fell asleep, to awaken at the same moment as their mistress, ready to wait upon her. The very spits before the fire, loaded with partridges and pheasants, stopped and fell asleep. So did the fire. All this was done in a moment, for fairies do not take long. Then the king and queen kissed their dear child without waking her, and left the castle. Orders were issued forbidding any to approach it. But the warnings were not needed, for within a quarter of an hour there grew up all round the park such a quantity of trees, big and small, with twining brambles and thorns that neither man nor beast could penetrate them. Nothing but the tops of the castle towers could be seen, and these only from a distance. No one could doubt that this was the fairy's work, done so that while the princess slept she should have nothing to fear from prying eyes. After a hundred years had passed, and another king was ruling the land, the king's son, who was no relation to the princess, returned from a hunt. He noticed for the first time the tops of the towers standing above the thick woods and asked what they might be. He was given various answers in reply. Some said it was an old castle haunted by ghosts. Others said that all the witches of the country gathered there to hold their midnight meetings. But most of them believed that it was the home of an ogre and that he brought there all the children he could catch. The prince did not know what to believe. It was then that an old countryman came forward and spoke, "'May it please your royal highness, my father told me more than fifty years ago that there was in this castle an enchanted princess, the most beautiful princess in the world. He said that this princess was under a spell, that she had to sleep one hundred years, 
and that she would be awakened by a king's son, whose bride she would be. When he heard this, the young prince was all on fire, thinking nothing of the difficulties he pushed forward, full of love and adventure and high spirits. He had only gone a few feet into the tangled woods when the brambles and bushes gave way. Even the trees made a path to let him pass through. The prince did not hesitate. He walked straight on towards the castle, which seemed to be at the end of a long avenue. The only thing that surprised him was that none of his people followed him, for as soon as he passed, trees and bushes closed in again and formed a thick barrier. As he approached the outer courtyard, he saw something which might have frozen with terror the blood of the most fearless person. Everything was stone silent. The feeling of death was everywhere. Nothing could be seen but bodies of men and animals, all stretched out, all seemingly dead. Then he noticed the red faces of the porters in their goblets, which still held some drops of wine, so he knew that they had fallen asleep at the, in the very act of drinking. Next he crossed the courtyard itself, a place all paved with marble. He mounted the staircase and entered a long hall, where guards were drawn up in a row, their guns upon their shoulders snoring for all they were worth. He passed through several rooms full of lords and ladies, some standing, some sitting, but all asleep. Finally he came into a golden room and saw upon a bed, the curtains of which were open, the most beautiful sight he had ever beheld, a lovely girl who seemed to be about fifteen or sixteen years old, whose beauty shone with unearthly radiance. Trembling, he drew close. This was the very moment which ended the fairy's spell. The princess awoke, saw the prince kneeling at her feet, and spoke with great tenderness. "'Is it you, my prince?' she said. You have been a long time coming. Thrilled by these words, and especially by the manner in which they were said, the prince scarcely knew how to show his delight and gratitude. His words were faltering, which pleased her all the more. And if he was more at a loss for words than she, no wonder. The princess had had time to think of what to say to him, for it seems, although it cannot be certain of this, that the good fairy lightened her long sleep with pleasant dreams. In short, the young couple talked together for, for four hours, and in that time they did not say half of what was in their hearts. In the meantime, the palace had awakened. Everyone suddenly remembered his particular business, and as most of the people were not in love, they were starved. The head lady of honor, as famished as anyone, grew impatient and announced that supper was served. All then went into a great hall hung with mirrors and were served with supper by the stewards of the household. The violins and oboes played some old music, and played it remarkably well, considering they had not played at all for exactly one hundred years. A little later, when supper was over, the chaplain married them in the chapel, and in due course they retired to rest. They slept very little, however. The princess, naturally, had not much need of sleep, and as soon as morning came the prince took his leave of her. He returned to the city and told his father, who was worried about him, that he had lost himself while hunting in the forest, but it ha had obtained some black bread and cheese from a charcoal burner in whose hut he had passed the night. His royal father, being of an easy-going nature, believed the tale, but his mother was not so easily deceived. She noticed that he now went hunting every day, and that he always had an excuse handy when he had slept two or three nights from home. She felt certain, therefore, that he had a secret sweetheart somewhere or other. Two years passed since the marriage of the prince and princess, and during that time they had two children. 
The first daughter was called Dawn, while the second, a boy, was named Day. Many a time the queen told her son that he ought to be content with life at court and tried to make him confide in her, but he did not dare trust her with his secret. Despite the affection which he bore her, he was afraid of his mother, for she came of a race of ogres, and the king had married her only for her wealth. It was even whispered at the court that she had ogreish instincts, and that when little children were near she had great difficulty keeping herself from pouncing on them. No wonder the prince feared to tell her about his wife. At the end of two years the king died, and the prince found himself on the throne. He then made public announcement of his marriage and went in state to fetch his queen from her castle. With her two children beside her, she made a royal entry into the capital of her husband's realm. Some time afterwards, the young king declared war on a neighboring emperor. He left the government to his mother, entrusting his wife and children to her. It looked as if the war would last all summer, and soon after the young king departed for the front, the old queen sent her daughter-in-law and the two children to a country house in the forest. A few days later, she went there herself, and in the evening summoned the chief steward. "'For dinner tomorrow,' she told him, "'I will eat little Dawn.' "'Oh, madam!' exclaimed the steward. "'It is my will,' said the queen. "'You will serve her with sharp sauce.' The poor man, seeing that it was useless to argue with an ogress, took his long knife and went up to little Dawn's chamber. She was then four years old, and she came running with a smile to greet him, throwing her arms around his neck and coaxing him to give her some candy. Whereupon he burst into tears and let the knife fall from his hand. Going to the backyard, he killed a small lamb. This he served to the queen with such a spicy sauce that she declared she had never tasted anything so delicious in all her life. At the same time, the steward brought little Don to his wife and told her to hide the child. About a week later, the wicked queen summoned her steward and said, This time I will have little day for my supper. The steward did not make any reply, for he decided to deceive her as he had done before. Searching for little day, he found him with a tiny sword in his hand, although he was only three years old, fencing with a huge ape. Taking the child up in his arms, he carried the boy to his wife, who hid him with his sister. Instead of little day, the steward cooked a young kid which the ogress found delicious. So far all had gone well, but one evening the wicked queen announced, Now I will eat the young queen. Serve her with the same sauce I had with her children. The steward was in despair. He could not imagine how to deceive her again. The young queen was twenty years old, not counting the hundred years she had been asleep, and he knew he could never find an animal with flesh so white and fine and firm. In order to save his own life, he knew that he would have to take the life of the young queen. Gritting his teeth, he drew his knife and went grimly up to the young queen's room. There he told her of the order he had received from the ogre's queen. "'Do it! Do it!' she cried, offering him her neck. "'Carry out the cruel command! Then at least I shall see my children again, my poor children whom I loved so much!' For since the steward had not told her what he had done, she believed them dead. "'No, no, madam,' cried the steward, his eyes filling with tears and his heart softening. "'You shall not die, and you shall see your children again. They are in my lodgings, where I have hidden them. "'I shall deceive the old queen once more, for instead of you I shall slaughter and serve a young hind.' Without another word he took her to his lodgings, 
where he left her to take her children in her arms while he went to prepare the animal. The old queen ate it with just as much relish as if she, it had been her, her young daughter-in-law. By this time she was well pleased with her cruel deeds, and she made up a story to tell the king when he returned, how some hungry wolves had broken into the palace and had devoured the young queen and her children. One evening, while, according to her habit, the ogress was roaming around sniffing for fresh meat, she heard little Day whimpering because he had been naughty. At the same time, she heard little Dawn beg her mother for, to forgive him. The ogress recognized the voices of the queen and her children, and was furious to find she had been tricked. The next morning, in tones so terrible that all trembled, she ordered a huge vat to be brought into the middle of the courtyard. This she filled with vipers and toads, with all sorts of snakes and serpents, in order to cast into it the queen and her children, and the steward with his wife and serving girl. By her command they were all brought forward with their hands tied behind their backs. They were brought out, ready for the end, and the executioners were about to throw them into the vat when the young king rode up on horseback. He demanded to know what was the meaning of this horrible sight. No one dared speak, and suddenly the ogress, who realized that everything would be found out, knew her end had come. She cast herself into the vat of poisonous toads and hissing serpents, and was immediately devoured by the very creatures she had put there to kill the others. The king could not help but be sorry, for after all she was his mother, but he consoled himself with the future, united with his beautiful wife and his adorable children. The End Wasn't that a lovely tale? Now be sure to thank Alira by contacting her on Twitter at twitter.com slash Alira, or you can leave a message on the blog post at ouat.bronyzone.com. Jeff would be happy to pass along an email to her as well. Just email feedback at onceuponatimepodcast.com. Well, we enjoyed your stay. Hopefully you did too. Now you come back next time and, and we'll have another story. Now you take care and we'll talk to you later. If you like the music, please visit incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. And consider supporting Kevin McLeod as he supplies all his music royalty free. Thank you for listening.